it was in 1956, Michael Langham's production of Henry V. And I suddenly got, oh, God, I got this awful pain in my tummy. And I thought, Christ, it's syphilis. So I went to the hospital, and they filled me with morphine. It was a kidney stone that had to be removed, and mm -hmm. God, they're painful. But Bill Shatner was my understudy, so he went on as Henry V. And what he did was he, he didn't do what I did at all. Next customer, please. Okay, my friend, act naturally. This is a gun in my pocket. You're going to put all of your podcasts into this bag and nobody will get hurt. Do it. I, I can't, though. Honestly, all the podcasts are in the vault. Well, what have you got in loose, unmarked reviews? Nothing. Uh, just an obscure, bizarre British thriller, uh, a Japanese science fiction anthology, and Baron Von Trapp going psycho. Who's reviewing them? And no funny business. Okay, okay. They're reviewed by Phil Walsh and Jim Hall, so definitely no chance of any funny business. Oh, Jesus. I know I should have robbed Blockbusters while they were still open. Tonight, an invitation to check out the crib turns nasty as we make goo-goo noises at Vanessa Howard and her lunatic family in Mumsy Nanny, Sunny and Girly. Cosmic ballrooms, germ warfare and a child's excited dreams of a bleak future. Animated portmanteau thrills in Katsuhiro Otomo's memories. And Elliot Gould finds that Santa's after more than a mince pie and a glass of sherry when bank robber Christopher Plummer makes him the silent partner. Woohoo! So, show 10, we've finally got ourselves into double figures. Yes. Put it there. Woo! <laughs> so forget this week's other big stories, which was uh, Prince Philip reaching 90, the Queen's birthday today as we record, although I know she's left us off the uh, birthday honours list again. Which birthday is it? Her official one, uh. I think, so there's Trooping of the Colour while we're uh, stuck here. You said to me, I remember you telling me you used to go past Buckingham Palace on your way to school. I did. Did you ever get to see uh, her match in the flesh? Um, in a carriage. She went past the carriage in <laughs> uh, her and Philip, the 90-year-old yeah. Philip. I kind of, I didn't really meet the Queen, but I did dance the Macarena in front of her once. <laughs> that is one hell of a claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly. No, um, it was... Christmas 97 I was seeing a girl who used to work at Windsor Castle and so I was there at the staff's Christmas party and yeah. they'd had to give me security clearance and everything to do the Macarena <laughs> <laughs> well they should have because I kicked over a pot plant during the um, there was a little band there it was, uh, mm. was it Joe Loss? Joe Loss's Joe Loss Jr.'s orchestra were doing the Macarena and I kicked over a potted plant and <laughs> Joe Loss Jr. had to kick the um, the pot plant back out of out of sight <laughs> So I, I don't know. I, they, I'm sure they weren't looking at me at the time. But um, this was only about ten weeks after Princess Diana was carried away by a moon, moonlight shadow. So um, I hope it helped Charles get through the, got over the hump. I'm sure it did. Oh dear. Seeing anyone do the Macarena and writing up your spirits. <laughs> oh dear. So uh, show ten. Did you ever think we'd get this far? I did in uh, 
in my dreams, my wild dreams. <laughs> <laughs> you need more ambition. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I think we've done pretty well considering we started in April. April yeah, 2nd was... Yeah, just over two months since we started uh, going. Yeah. But, Fish-boshing um, them out, aren't we? We'll get it right one day. <laughs> yeah, always room for improvement. <laughs> Absolutely. As my wife says. <laughs> oh, okay, ready to uh, crack on? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Better hurry up or I'll be finished before you. You're not allowed to finish before me. That's right, I'm not. Just remember, you're only the nanny. I'm the mumsy. By 1969, Vanessa Howard and Howard Trevor were too old to be in school uniforms and larking about down the park, but we blame the parents, or at least their mother and nanny, who've conspired to keep the little darlings in an arrested state of murderous childhood. When new friend Michael Bryant comes to tea one day, he soon finds it very difficult to escape the lunatic world of Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny and Girlie in this curiosity from director Freddie Francis. So we recently covered uh, Sir Henry at Rawlinson End, which was about a pretty dysfunctional family in their big stately home, uh, featuring Trevor Howard. And now we've got another dysfunctional family in a stately home, featuring Howard Trevor. It's so confusing, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It, and also Vanessa Howard. Hold on, it's Howard Trevor. No, was it Vanessa Howard and Howard Trevor? That's right, yeah. All these Howards. We're easily confused. Howard's aren't we? way. But poor old um, Howard Trevor, who, looking on Wikipedia, is, it's, it stands out in the entry on this film because his name's just in red, so um, no further. No no hype, nothing to see. No hype. Same as on IMDb, it's his only, uh, the only listing for him is really? Mumsy Nanny. So that, um, that Howard Trevor festival we wanted to do is, this is it. It's been quashed. This is all we're going to get. Um, Freddie Francis, are you a fan of his? Yeah, I mean, I know his cinematography more than his films. I'm not a big Hammer or Amicus mm -hmm. buff, really. Um, I've seen my, the big ones growing up. But yeah, I know him as like the cinematographer for Lynch on Elephant Man and Dune. Yep. And Scorsese did Cape Fear, I think. Didn't yeah, he? that's right. Yeah. yeah. No, it was kind really of like. fairly in demand, I think, that. But yeah, he did do these um yeah, largely British horror movies. Um but most of those are things which uh, when I was growing up used to be on T V fairly regularly. Um this I'd never heard of though, so this is a, a recommend from you. Yeah, um, I have to thank Mr Kim Newman again and uh, James Marriott from the 333 bloody things that I can never remember. <laughs> yes. But it was in, it was featured in there and it it caught my eye immediately. I thought it sounded very interesting. Yeah, it sounded pretty much uh, up our street. Yeah. Um, but was it up your street? Did it knock on your door? And it played Knock Down Ginger. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I wasn't too keen on this at all. It was... There's something about adults acting in that childish way which can be really disturbing. Or it can be very effective. Do you know the Dennis Potter play um, Blue Remembered Hills? With no. Right, because I mean, that the idea in that is that they are children. It's a stage play, but it's it's famous as a TV um, a TV play which had people like um, Helen Mirren and Michael Elphick in. Okay. Colin Jeevans. The idea in that is that they are children, but they've got adult actors to play them, and so it's showing that you know the seeds of how we are when we grow up are sort of in there when we're cruel children and how we gang up on people it's a really good play well worth um, highly great. recommended whereas this was just irritating I mean I was it did the thing that's so obvious of having is it boys and girls come out to play all over it in this really 
ghastly kind of slightly twisted nursery version and that was that was there to create the atmosphere and that was it I don't think it really did much work um, anywhere else and to explain the setup yeah you've got uh, Vanessa Howard and Howard Trevor as what are they they're meant to be late teens early 20s yeah going around in school uniforms um, they're in a zoo very early on aren't they um, yeah wandering around a zoo but it's very early in the morning it's before the zoo's open taunting the keeper <laughs> and then pick up a tramp I yeah. think the the setup because oh, I thought there was going to be a setup to the film here where they generally pick up lonely blokes because of Vanessa Howard in a gym slip take them back and kill them and yeah there's there's a little bit of death and murder going on in this but not it's not, not explicit it's, is it no, and it's um, maybe I'm, you know, being unimaginative, but maybe I've seen so many horror films when you have that kind of setup of the family who are a bit warped and they sort of reel people in. I was expecting something like that here, but there isn't that. Um, I'm not even sure what the setup is when they keep inviting people back to the house and holding on. To, are they just meant to be playmates for them? Because there's no, like, father figure or patriarchal figure. Um, the people that they're bringing back, their friends, the new friends as they call them, seem to be there to service Mumsy. Well, literally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the status quo of their existence becomes um, problematic when Michael Bryant's character pops up because Gurley has a crush on him, doesn't she? And there's. Yeah, and there's kind of a brief moment when she seems to break character, if that's the right phrase. Because all the way through they are talking in this very childish way, but then she seems to be a, a proper adult, you know, for a brief yeah. time. But yeah, Michael Bryant, who um, I didn't really pick up on this, I'm not sure if you did, is meant to be a male prostitute in it. Um, I didn't know he was a sex worker. Because <laughs> he doesn't look it, does he? No, not he, at all. He I looks mean... like he should be a caretaker at a local school <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, when you first see him, he's with a woman who's like dressed in a what long white dress, quite chic and that. And I just took them to be and they're husband having and a, wife. And they're having an argument, so I assumed, yeah, they just um, one of them had made a bit of an embarrassing scene at a party mm. and, you know, it would all come to a head and then they start quite unwisely they go off with two um, two adults dressed as school children to go and play on a slide with them and it ends in tears yeah it does it ends in a dangerous game of leapfrog <laughs> and yeah from there on in Michael Bryant as new friend uh, is stuck at the house and uh, I don't know is he ever actually blackmailed into not leaving or is it I think he is blackmailed that, that was obvious to me I thought that he was made to feel that he'd Caused the death of his partner, the, the mm. woman he was with, and his John, his John, <laughs> his Janet, yeah, and um, yeah, he just sort of, yeah, kind of accepts that he's going to be there. I mean, but a bit earlier on, there's that um, tramp who's brought back momentarily, yeah, at the house, and he just seems to accept it as well. Yeah, he's been drinking his own piss. Yeah. <laughs> he's been buried in a sandpit up to his neck for quite a while as well. Yeah, I mean that's. That's another thing with this. You, um, it, yeah, that setup of bringing people back and the idea of nursery games taking on a sort of dark aspect to them, and it was in that tradition of things like um, the Avengers used to do things like this. There's a specific episode I remember where they do. Uh, it's called something nasty in the nursery where, as usually in the Avengers, some businessmen are sort of targeted by some organisation and kind of revert to their kind of childhood and are after their nannies all the time. But you know, just on the Avengers in general, you could imagine that storybook and nursery rhyme thing taken and put and given a, 
a, a, a dark twist. And this uh, didn't seem to go with that. Um, and I was expecting it to. That's not to say it had to, but it didn't replace it with anything else. Because, yeah, throughout this, I didn't feel the setup was very well defined. Um, which, again, it doesn't have to, but everything else about it seemed to suggest that it should. I think my main problem with it is it's based on a stage play. Um, by Maisie Mosco, which I've read. I mean, I've, I've not read the play. Um, I've read about it that it was meant to be a comment on the breakdown of the nuclear family in the 60s in the sort of face of free love. And that doesn't come across in this film. Um, you know, it's up to them if they want to adapt it into something else. But it looks like it was possibly caught between that source material and a bid to do a more run-of-the-mill British horror film and it's not really successful at doing either of those I don't feel. I don't think it does a very good job of showing the breakdown of uh, an allegorical tale of the breakdown of the nuclear family at all. That wasn't screaming out. <laughs> no but it was interesting to see this already lunatic family um, breaking down upon the arrival of this um, what's he called? Um, new, new friend. friend yeah. I thought that was quite interesting because previously the you led to believe, or I think that the the friends were servicing Mumsy, yeah. And this time, Gurley wants a bit of the action, so so does Nanny, and Nanny as well. That's right. Only Sonny's not um, <laughs> getting. Sonny's got share. <laughs> um, so I thought that was quite interesting because that that watching them break down, I was wondering where it was going to go, and that kept me in with the story. That kept me. Um, yeah, I mean. Drawn in. That could have worked, but it. All right, like I say, it doesn't have to be a horror film, but it kind of looks like it's trying to do that. And because you've got such a limited cast, you've only really got five characters in it. Um, it means you're not really going to get a great deal of this promised menace. Doesn't really come to. Uh, doesn't really manifest at any point in it. Well, it does eventually, but obviously you've got a very limited number of bodies that can uh, wind up on the carpet. But. Um, I don't know, Freddie Francis, uh, as good as he is, as, as was sadly, as a cinematographer. I, I mean, the films, the Hammer and Amicus films, I know him from. They were fairly workmanlike. Yeah, the, um, same with this. I was quite surprised. I thought there'd be some flair. Mm. Um, the potential in this stately home, which he specifically wanted to film there. I mean, they changed the the story from the stage play in order to film within this environment. The potential for that sort of, the violent tendencies that cropped up just were a little lacking. Mm. But that wasn't, for me, because I, I was taking it on board that this was more a comedy than anything. So maybe it was trying to steer away from that. Um, because you have the, because uh, personally I found it quite amusing that they just seem to talk in um, nursery rhymes all the time. Um, it reminded me a little bit of um, the kids in Drowning by Numbers. Okay. How, you know, the little girls just always counting or, and Smut is always... There's that childish way of um, describing things as exactly as they are and just reciting nursery rhymes over and over. It seemed like the height of childishness to me. But this was what was pissing you off. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, just on that subject, on the way here today, I was on the train, and because it is the Queen's official birthday today, um, there was a there was a little girl with her mum, and she, the girl just went, because it's the Queen's birthday, 
will she eat 1,000 cakes? <laughs> That's Which, brilliant. <laughs> if she does, I'd, I'd like to see that. Yeah, you could do the macarena. Yeah, I could. <laughs> the macaruna. <laughs> oh, um, from the mouths of babes. <laughs> and all down the back of your top. <laughs> Cheesy question, Vanessa Howard. Did she do it for you? Yeah, no, very pretty girl. Very yeah, because um, the only other thing I know her from is the Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer, the Peter Cook movie. Have you seen, seen that? that no. Which is uh, not brilliant, but worth worth tracking down. It did have some uh, good stuff in. Mm. But yeah, she's a kind of trophy wife in that. But yeah, I don't know that she went on to do a great deal else uh, beyond this. I think the last film I saw her do on IMDb was like seventy three or something. Yeah, she probably so, um, died. Well, no, she could just get on with doing other things. Oh, right, yeah. Um, um, she grew out of her gym slips. <laughs> Michael Bryant? Yeah, I'm not that familiar. I actually thought Malcolm McDowell would have been much better in his role. Actually, yeah, because this is the problem with him. He's meant to be a male prostitute, but he just doesn't look... He looks like he should be a... Geography teacher? Not even that. What would he be? He'd be delivering. He wouldn't even be delivering beer to a brewery. Milk. He'd just be. No, he's too. Uh, you could. I don't know. You could just imagine him in a cloth cap at the gates of some uh, factory. And <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. But he did, you know, male prostitute. You pr- they could probably could have got someone more glamorous. Yeah, yeah. there was no no shortage of pe- uh, you know ace faces in '69. Uh, at that time, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean whether Terence Stamp or um, David Hemmings or Malcolm McDowell would have been up for this, mm. I don't know. But it would have really given it something whereas yeah he just it also makes it just a little disturbing but not in the way the film's intending that there's him as this guy's what pushing 50 you know trying it on with uh, Vanessa Howard mm. I was wondering watching this if someone like Toby Hooper or Wes Craven even were influenced by it in some way you know like The Hills of Eyes or uh, Texas Chainsaw because it predates them by a number of years well a few years mm. but very similar I mean I got real echoes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in particular you know at the tea tea party yeah they've got they their own rituals on. and everything has to be done properly yeah. but they're not just capable of murder but you know fairly frequent uh, it seemed I don't know it seems an, an obvious comparison but again this is like it predates those films yeah no I'm um, because yeah, probably Texas Chainsaw and Hills Have Eyes were the first films to do that. I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure people will let us know if we're wrong on that, but they seem pretty staple ingredient of horror movies ever since, really. And yeah, you're right. Although that didn't occur to me watching this, it reminded me more of um, you know Gorman Gas, the Mervyn Peak oh, thing, yeah. where you had a family who was sort of cut off. You could tell the rest of the world was carrying on as normal, but they were isolated and absolutely wrapped up in this tradition. But mm. in Gorman um you know that everyone's implicit in that and, and it's not re- I guess it's maybe just my problem I just found it muddling that there was no real I thought there was going to be some explanation for why everyone was doing this or these four people had um, why they were in that had decided to come to that kind of arrangement yeah because there's no there's no talk of how the family were or anything yeah or or mention of any other family members it just seemed like they'd always been that way That's mm. I suppose you have to um and that lack of answers could be good, but it just it doesn't work for me. No, it worked fine for me. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't a problem. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I wonder if Stanley Kubrick was familiar with this. Go on. 
because there's a scene where Nanny is battering a door down with an axe and <laughs> it is almost scene for scene uh, comparable to The Shining to like here's Nanny it's, <laughs> it really is I was so shocked oh if Jack Nicholson had been this it would have been something very special nasty Nanny is no good chop her up for firewood when she's dead boil her head make it into gingerbread Katsuhiro Tomo's Akira is largely credited with breaking both anime and manga in the West. Following Akira's success, Otomo's next project was 1995's Memories, an anthology by different directors based on three of his futuristic manga tales. The stories range from a deep space distress call leading to the haunted holographic tomb of an opera star, the unwilling guinea pig in a germ warfare experiment becoming the world's most wanted man, and a dark portrait of a city locked in perpetual war against an unseen enemy. I'm by no means an expert on anime, but I've seen quite a lot. Probably the most obvious ones Akira, Fist of the North Star, Ninja Scroll, um, Ghost in the Shell, Steam Boy. I see you've got that box set of Ulysses 31 on your shelf as well. Uh, yeah, but that's a French-Japanese uh, co-production. They did like Cities of Gold, the Dog Tanyan and the Musketeers. Muskehounds. <laughs> Muskehounds, sorry. Yeah, so I was going to ask, are you big up on it, Jim? Or? Not at all, no. Um, yeah, it's almost like I've avoided anime. Um, I think because... Well, from my own ignorance, what little I know of it does look like it's kind of fetishistic about huge amounts of hardware, schoolgirls and things like that. <laughs> However, I did go and see um, Akira, the pictures, when it was released in, in the UK in about 1990, um, because I had read the comic, uh, sorry, the manga. Actually, no, it was a comic. They'd reissued it in a sort of different kind of format. But, um, yeah, as we've said before, I'm a big comics fan. I've never really... And, um, mangas never really appealed to me I think partly because the artwork seems to my eyes quite um, um, uniform it's generic it? isn't it yeah it's po yeah. I'm sure if you're an expert on it you can see huge differences and recognise artists but it does seem like you know and I'm sure I know Marvel Comics did the same kind of thing at various points there was kind of a house style almost and, yeah it's, um, like, it's been homogenised yeah homogenised yeah. the word and you know um part of the appeal of comics for me is that they're so varied but you know we're going off point already I'd not seen really any anime beyond Akira I remember quite enjoying that um, but none of the other stuff really appealed and I, w I thought it was about time we covered something and I was pleased you recommended this you, you um, sent me the trailer on YouTube which looked fantastic so I was really looking forward to watching this um, an anthology three stories just come out and say I thought the first one was absolutely fantastic you know the first story in it's called Magnetic Rose and it's a yeah, corker absolutely brilliant yeah just a fantastic setup great visuals and just you know so beautifully done as well you can really see the craft I was going to say there's artistry into, there yeah, isn't there yeah absolutely um, the setup of that is um, the crew of a spaceship answer a distress call that sounds familiar. Yes. A mining ship, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well? something like that, yeah. <laughs> um, head off and when they get there, yeah. Uh, 
it's a hologram kind of setting, um, which is the tomb of this um, opera star. So you've got that nice um, juxtaposition that comes when you've got high-tech space suits, although it's got, again, that used future look. They look like they've been out there for a while. They're quite a cynical bunch. But then they're in these very grand surroundings. And an obvious comparison there, not just Alien, but... Um, 2001 because you've got these very grand I wrote that down absolutely well. yeah, yeah. Uh, very Solaris grand surrounding well. <laughs> yeah I guess yeah dream like um, qualities of yeah I'm jumping ahead yeah now, but well no go on I'll yeah I just thought on. with um, because when the rescue team get there there's two guys go in and they start experiencing hallucinations but the, it's clever because you don't know whether it's hallucinations or it's part of the holograms and what works well is because you have this sort of anachronistic setup of the past with all this futuristic uh, technology is that their own the character's own past becomes part of the um, yeah they start experiencing their own memories and I mean something I really liked about it was it did treat the audience as if they were familiar with a lot of this kind of stuff it didn't try and I think a lot of the time you'd have a setup where it the audience would probably know it was a hologram <laughs> immediately, but it'd try and they'd spend some time before revealing that or revealing it was robots or whatever. They get straight on with it, don't they? And I don't think the, the crew are phased at all when they can walk through some of the, you know, physically pass through some of the uh, images that they're seeing. So, hey, have you ne- I think one of the lines is, have you never seen a hologram before? Yeah, you know? yeah it was. And I love that. I love that fact that you're not going to have to go through that whole tired process of, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this they got straight on with it and so yeah it largely did abandon story I suppose at that point and just became a collection of these really haunting images and I found it quite powerful it was um, quite moving in some ways yeah definitely but also it does have that feeling of haunted house and horror but there was nothing uh, visceral happening in it and as a result of that I think it was it was a lot more effective because of that I think Horror obviously works largely on um, showing bodies getting ripped to pieces or something. It's something we fear. Um, but most of us, thankfully, aren't going to end up like that. But most of us at some point will probably get overwhelmed by thinking about our past or you know, not letting go of something that we wished we could have done differently or w- could return to. So a lot of the images in this I found really, really worked for me. That was um, really yeah. fantastic. Um, a point when the I was particularly... Uh, taken with some of the the hallucinations almost became real and they were like cobwebs there was a weird substance yeah, that was forming become, in front of them it's like they were actually manifesting it looks like they were built from dust yes yeah yeah, um, yeah like you say there's not horror but it, there was a very disturbing yeah feel but it to got it. It, I think it got right inside me it was um, absolutely fantastic it's um, and there was a character called Carlo Rambaldi Yes, uh, the father of E.T. and the Close Encounters, eh? and the Sandworms. And the Sandworms, The the model maker behind all of those um, (laughs) great 80s and 70s monsters. This takes up the lion's share of the film, doesn't it? It's what is about about 40 minutes. minutes, And um, I did read a little bit, I I did read around a little bit on the film, and it does seem like the consensus is Magnetic Rose, that first story, is, you know, people love it, and the other two just don't really... uh, hold a candle to it did you find that was the case I absolutely love Magnetic Rose but I, I think Cannon Fodder is my favourite the last one mm-hmm. um, which I suppose we could jump to that but maybe we should do oh, Stink Bomb let's do it in uh, <laughs> 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 we 
we sound so earnest. Can we do stink bomb? <laughs> yeah, let's do it in order because yeah. obviously it has been presented with some thought that that's how they wanted the. Because as they yeah. as the three films are set out, they're all slightly shorter. So I yeah. think the next one is about thirty minutes, thirty five minutes. Although it was a little bit too long, I thought. The yeah, one. it concerns itself with. Uh, a kind of office idiot who works at a chemical company who accidentally ingests a chemical that causes anyone around him to die. Yeah, basically <laughs> he starts secreting through his sweat glands and stuff, this kind of um, uh, mustard gas kind of substance. But and it becomes uh, um, a national um, yeah. disaster. disaster. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, yeah, I was watching this the other night, um, you'd lent me the disc, uh, Magnetic Rose, I was very tired but I was so caught up in it that I was sort of my, my attention was absolutely held so I was really looking forward to the next story, Stink Bomb, but I watched probably 10 minutes of that and thought I'll watch the rest of this tomorrow and about the time that I picked it up the next day the, the, the plot had sh shifted off into I don't know, it reminded me a little bit of the Spielberg movie 1941, where they just piled in as much mayhem and military carnage and stuff as possible. Uh, I mean, there's no, no, there are lots of deaths in it, but not, you know, but military hardware isn't there. Most of it's him on a kind of motor scooter or something being chased by tanks and stuff. And yeah, it's all a bit knockabout. And I well, I think that's the problem. It, it, it is a comedy, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you it's probably needed something lighter after this quite sort of traumatizing <laughs> uh, opening chapter, but there's not a lot going on, it is there? Yeah, the comedic tone didn't really work well. It reminded me very much of. Like I was saying before about Ulysses, there to well, Dog Tanyon and the Muskerhelms. It was almost like that, that sort of caper. Yeah, it just wasn't all that good. Yeah, there wasn't much of a story to support it. But you were saying earlier your favourite is the third one, oh, um, Cannon Fodder. Cannon Fodder, which is very short, isn't it? It's seemingly only 15 about fifteen minutes. minutes. Written and directed by Otomo. Yeah, and um, that's something we've not mentioned. Three directors, and even though I was sort of complaining at the top of this uh, review about how homogenised I find a lot of um, manga and anime kind of art, um, they do all look very distinct from each other. And the main thing with Canon Fodder is it's got a very washed out look to it, hasn't it? I mean, in the same way, the second film is all about fighter jets and tanks. This is much more of this imagined uh, huge military world. It's all a sort of factory setting. Um, it's it's weird. It's high tech, but then it all boils down to just having this big gun that fires. It's it's, it's almost Brazil-like, you know. The I was trying to avoid saying Gilliam because we seem to mention him a lot, but yes, uh, it, it had a feel of that. Yeah, well, all the the pipes, the networks, yeah. how everything feels like hermetically sealed. Yeah, and just heavy industry. Um, but I suppose the other thing, and it's a kind of obvious comparison, was uh, when the wind blows. It yeah. seemed like a very very broadly done swipe at the futility of war. But that's no bad thing, you know. If anything, I was this was brilliantly done, um, Cannon Fodder, but I was quite pleased it was only 15 minutes because I didn't want to stay in that world too much longer. <laughs> and actually, it, it sort of pretty much described... There's not much of a plot, is that it just kind of describes the setup and then ends... It's it almost have like a, a day in the life of Yeah, this and you know that it's going to go on and on and on. Mm. Um, but throughout it, we've got this one family, which is the, the, uh, the mother works in a munition... Uh, the mother works in this munitions factory, which seems like battery hens almost. Isn't there the line, you know, there's lunch, but go and eat your food as fast as possible. The enemy never sleeps. <laughs> um, the dad just looks like some... He's been buried for several months, it's doesn't brilliantly he? brilliantly drawn. Yeah, he's um, cadaverous. So. <laughs> yeah, and just looks in a permanent state of shell shock. 
and also you see his face, whereas his co-workers are just anonymous, aren't they? They've got these kind of elephantine gas Yeah, like in on. Flash Gordon. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's the kid who looks horrible, I think. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's not his fault, but the idea is he's brought up in that world and just seems to love it, and he can't wait to grow up. And, um, you know, I think what is he, he's saluting what presumably is the emperor or something, uh, this big picture of him. Yeah, it, without saying too much, it absolutely uh, captured something we all know, but it's 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 always useful to be uh, reminded of. Yeah, I, and, and the point that you made earlier as well about the look and the style of it, how it's, I think it's so different from any other anime that I've ever seen. Nothing, it, you know, there was something <laughs> I kept thinking of Lowry. Um, yeah, you I know, guess. Lowry, because of the the industrial side of it and. The lines are a lot thicker and a lot more loose than usually the tight, fine lines of um, anime that mm. I've seen before. And also, I must admit, I didn't really notice it watching it, but when reading about it after, that a lot of scenes, there's only about four takes in the whole thing. Well, takes, I, I know what well, you mean, though. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like continuous tracking shots, because mm. you have a lot of, um, again, this figure who's the Supremo, this Emperor figure, uh, he'll sort of get taken up on a platform with a rail, and it's kind of like a Thunderbirds, uh, yes, <laughs> Tracy yeah. Island thing. He'll get carted around for ages, and then just light the fuse. But that these seem to go on for, yeah, they even though it's animated, it, they do look like long shots, don't mm. they? That of uh, yeah, long tracking shots. That even if you don't notice it, makes it something special and different because you're so used to cartoons being these individual animated scenes cutting back and forth they're very uh, frantic mm. and this just seems a lot more stately and yeah fantastic stuff it's just a shame stink bomb was um, a stinker, a stinker <laughs> indeed <laughs> yeah possibly sandwiched between these two quite bleak stories you probably needed something a bit lighter but I'm sure he I'm not familiar with Otomo's work but I'm sure these were based on manga stories he'd done I'm sure he had something uh, a little bit better up his sleeve but yeah, Akira kind of, uh, as far as I know, that was the first anime I'd ever heard of, and I think it was one of the. F it's the first one I know that got a cinema release in the UK. Um, but presumably that had been going on for a long, long time in, in Japan. There's a long tradition of it. Yeah. It's amazing to think this came out in '95, and I've never heard of it. And I don't think that's just me. I think that's. It's, is it that well known amongst anime audiences? I don't really. I mean, I don't. I don't mix with those types, <laughs> but I, I really don't know. But I know it's. It's certainly if if you said Akira to someone, oh yeah, they'd know that. But I think if you said oh, Memories by the same guy, I, I, I think you'd get a blank stare. Yeah, because it's it's an amazing film, especially those you know that first one, Magnetic Rose. Um, it just seems criminal that this something this great exists, and uh, it just seems to exist in this little ghetto. Canadian bank employee Elliot Gould deduces that the branch he works in is about to face a stick-up. He figures that anything he puts to one side will get blamed on the armed robber. In this case, Christopher Plummer dressed as Father Christmas. With neither man what you might call predictable, 1978's The Silent Partner follows the battle of wills that results when Plummer wants his money back and Gould refuses to play ball. How miles was your imagination? Surely there's something you want. There is. What? Oscillated puffer. Oh, what? 
A blowfish. There's a really fine specimen down at Ron's aquarium shop. Well, Phil, it's usually you who comes up with an anecdote about you remember seeing the cover of the video when you were a kid. Um, unbelievably, there was a time I rem I'm old enough to remember when um, home video first started, um, and I remember going into Woolworths, and I think there were probably only about 50 videos in the world, uh, videotapes, and amongst them, there were a lot of titles they had there, and I think they were all about and this is what 1980 or something they were all about 70 pounds an insane amount of money but most of them were titles I'd heard of or had some idea what they were about with the exception of the naked civil servant I had no idea what that was uh, and then there was this movie Silent Partner which I'd only yeah even now I've only just recently seen and um, The Stuntman the Peter O'Toole mm. movie That's, uh, do you know that film? Well, I know of it yeah, yeah. oh well worth, well worth watching um, the weird thing is, Silent Partner just had, yeah, on the cover of it, some guy dressed as Father Christmas with a gun. And it was Silent Partner, I thought, yeah, this is going to be a crime movie, but it was Certificate X, which was so um, intimidating. I just thought, what could be going on in that that it deserves an X? I thought this can't be any worse than the Sweeney or something, can it? <laughs> and, um, you know, after that, I just assumed for years um, that maybe had a lot of swearing or something. But watching it now, I can understand why it got an X. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's surprisingly um, gruesome. And, yeah, but um, something else I just want to say about it before we get into it. I watched this on Wednesday night, and the previous night um, I went with our friend Steve to watch X Men First Class which was kind of jolly popcorn, but it was pretty ropey, really, I suppose. It was just a bunch of, um, you know, CGI set pieces, and um, I think it's quite telling if, after a while, the reason you're enjoying the film is how great their wardrobes look, because it's set in the early 60s, and they all look very, um, they all look really slick in it. I just thought, man, this isn't really how a movie should be, is it? So watching this the next day, which I thought is brilliant, mm. um, the script, the script of it is so good, and you know it's going to be an obvious thing. Maybe it's in your notes. Um, Hitchcockian? No, I don't. No. I, I don't make a point of writing about Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, just in terms no, of it's yeah, got no. that setup of the normal guy who gets caught up in yeah. a sort of uh, you know something criminal going on, um, but really unexpected. I mean. It's nothing like Cutthroat's Nine, but again, it's one that I'm a bit reluctant to go on too much about the story because it goes off in quite a lot of twists, which um, aren't to expect. Well, twists aren't expected, are they? Unless no. it's M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it is twisted um, in plot-wise, but and and, and what psychologically, sort of like, yeah. Wow, um, yeah. Christopher Plummer like really freaks me out in this um, good and proper. Not only dressed as Santa Claus, but wearing a black string vest. That was the most shocking thing. I thought that's what got the X certificate <laughs> to begin with, because you're so used to seeing Christopher Plummer as Baron Von Trapp, or um, he's in Return of the Pink Panther as this very sophisticated... You know, Star Crash? Oh, well, even then, the he's Emperor after, of the Universe. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's just Emperor yeah. of the Universe. <laughs> he's, you know, he's, he's floating he's around at the uh, the upper echelons. Whereas <laughs> here, just seeing him in a black string vest with a little... Um, a little gold necklace, isn't he? An eyeliner. But uh, yeah, what did you think of this? Yeah, it was it was brilliant. I think I I wanted to do this, and I've no idea why, and I've I've not been able to trace back as to the reason why I did it. Apart from that, it's a remake of a Danish film which was based on a book, 
Um, I don't know why I would have known that. <laughs> no, I did see in the credits it was based on a book. I didn't know there'd been an earlier version. Yeah, there'd been an earlier version, a Danish the, one. Um, the screenplay here is by Curtis Hansen, who's since... LA Confidential. Yeah. I remember when that came out and had loads of um, great reviews and people saying, well, wh where's this come from? Curtis Hansen's on the other credit is um, The River Wild with Meryl Streep. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, these things can happen. But watching this... I mean, That's where it came from. Yeah, it's <laughs> such a brilliant script. Yeah, it drew me in straight away because, you know, you've got Elliot Gould probably at the peak of his powers, um, but not with Altman. So he's doing something a bit different. He had this wonderful perma-smirk that sort of had a lot of there's something going on behind his eyes all the time and he, he displayed that with uh, with commensurate skill and there was also that wonderful thing in the 70s that there's always a touch of surreality to me about situations um, particularly in offices and that and the, the relationship between him and Susanna York like from the off is always very never quite sure what to make of it and it really added to the um the textures of the the plot and yeah because things are done with some subtlety here and mm. i'm glad you were saying that about gould because i think he's, he's not someone who's ever previously impressed me that much or nothing against him but here i thought he was so good because it's not obvious from the outset but i think he is meant to be slightly autistic even isn't he yeah, um, yeah, when his uh, his answer to questions is always just very matter of fact, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not like a Rain Man performance or anything, but he's clearly someone who just the speed with he which he didn't go full retard. He didn't go full retard. <laughs> um, I mean, at the beginning, yeah, he's he's asking girls out on a date, um, and he uses this great chat up technique with the carbon paper. Uh, on the cans of foils, which I should probably use myself at some point. Can you even get but a carbon? Probably not in this electronic <laughs> age now. Um, but with that, you're thinking, you know, Elliot Gould, he's not a conventionally good-looking guy, but he was a big 70s film star. And the way he acts in this, there's just something about him which means you you know he's a little bit of an outsider, but it's not, it's not laid on in spades, is it? No. And again, Christopher Plummer, when you first see him, you realise he's not just a guy with a gun. You can tell his brain is wired up really strangely, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I suppose you could say in a way they're, um, they're both performing slightly out of character from what you'd usually expect. Oh, what was it, late 78? So well, Plummer certainly, unless he's got a whole range of films I don't know about. But Gould, yeah, you're used to him and you know, obviously Donald Sutherland being this kind of their acceptable face of counterculture kind of... Uh, yeah, that kind of 70s, um, slightly sort of laid back kind of character, aren't they? Californian. Mm. And um, yeah, just the fact he's a bank teller in a C Canadian bank. Very clearly Canada, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so, well, it's, I think it's um, billed as a Canadian movie, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm not familiar with the director, Daryl Dukes. No, I don't know, I don't know any of this else. stuff. But it's not just, I mean, they're, they're definitely the highlights for me, the, the characters, but the. Um, I wouldn't say it's labyrinthine uh, twists and turns, oh, but it's not far off. Um, you never really know what to expect, but you do try to make an effort to, to fathom it out. Exactly. You don't give up. You have to keep on your toes, because, mm. again, I'm not going to spoil the plot, but um, around the scene with the identity parade, I was thinking, well, hold on, why is this happening? And I think the fact that the obvious thing, Elliot Gould's character wasn't doing what you'd automatically assume he would, made you think, well, why... 
why is he doing that? And then when you think about it, you think, oh, of course, yeah. And then you've kind of, you didn't have to have it explained to you. It's clear when the results of that happen, you know, come to fruition a bit later, you've you've kind of worked it out yourself. And it's, uh, I've said it before, it's brilliant to have a script that credits you with some intelligence and makes you work rather than just saying, sit back and watch this thing. It's rewarding as yeah. a viewer, which is quite rare nowadays to yeah. feel um, part of it. <laughs> Yeah, having said it's got twists and things, I think the biggest one is just. Um, <laughs> I'm bad to blow the biggest twist. No, I'm not. The most unusual thing with this is that um, you'd expect a story like this when a guy gets um, mixed up in with a psychopath who armed robber, that he'd absolutely panic and be trying to get out of it somehow, and yeah, possibly the robber would blackmail him or something. But Gould doesn't let go at all, does he? When he first knows that Plummer's onto him, and he's yeah, he's he's on the couch with Susanna York, um, and he gets this phone call, this intimidating phone call from Plummer. It doesn't put him off his stride at all, does it? No, no. Which um, again, I think is some indication that he's not quite there, Elliot Gould's character. But throughout it, he never panics. He just the thing he reminds me of is actually um, Tom Cruise in the first um, Mission Impossible, when he's just absolutely two two steps ahead at immediately. You know, mm. as soon as something happens, he's already thought through what the best way to deal with it is. So yeah, it is like a battle of wits and a battle of wills between Plummer and Gould and they seem quite evenly matched and sort of neither of them are going to back down on this and it's absolutely brilliant. It's, it's like um, a constant game of one-upmanship, isn't it? Because yeah. there's a fantastic scene which I really have to mention where yeah, Plummer yeah. rings um, Elliot in his, in his apartment and threatens him and then they they swap places basically don't they uh elliot run ends up running out to the back of his apartment and Plummer comes up and he's he's there and then elliot rings him from the same payphone and calls him yeah it's it's so well done though that was the other thing i found um usually i get a bit funny when films are really uneven in tone and they get a bit lost or like you were saying in mummy nancy how you were getting pissed off because you couldn't tell really what it was aiming for and this had some of that for me with like the comedic element to it but it worked really well because there was some really sinister uh, yeah. goings on I think some of the stuff that looks comedic actually can look quite disturbing as well I'm mm. not going to say what happens at the end but yeah he's disguised as Father Christopher Plummer is disguised as Father Christmas at the beginning it's a good striking image he has a second disguise much later on in the film which we won't reveal but that is it should be comical but actually is quite disturbing and it's absolutely how it's done um, when that second disguise appears your attention isn't drawn to it it's kind of like you eventually realize it's plumber but they don't have any sort of shock revelation music the fact it's done in silence makes you think what <laughs> <laughs> yeah like we said it is quite a twisted film and I remember you you called me on Wednesday night when I was watching this and I said oh, have you watched silent partner yet and no, no, no. I said wait till you get to about 22 minutes in um, let's not tell people what that scene is but did that um, pull the rug out from under you? Yeah it was shocking really uh, it's hard to talk about it yeah. without going into details well let's not go into details but basically it's, it's, you're not used to that kind of um, you're not used to seeing Baron Von Trapp getting up to that kind of um, no <laughs> later on as well um, again we're allu- we're allude to it without talking about what happens but his scene with the fish tank as well is just what? yeah you probably won't look at fish in the same way after that <laughs> yes. tropical fish 
Well, that's another nice detail with it, because like I say, I think, all right, I don't think Elliot Gould's character maybe is autistic, but there's something about him that like he doesn't relate to other people on a normal level. And um, the fact that all they have to do with that is show that he has a real fascination with tropical fish, and Susanna York's character thinks this is, makes no bones about the fact that she thinks that's not an appropriate thing for a guy to be into. Mm. Yeah, because he talks, he knows the Latin name as yeah, well, doesn't yeah. he? When he talks about the fish, he says them in the Latin name and then uh, the English name, you know, as it's perfect, as though it's perfectly normal. So yeah, we're both very impressed with this. Um, I'm really keen to watch it again quite soon. Um, did it maintain this pacing through it? Because like I say lots of twists in it, and there was a point for me at around an hour in when I thought oh, this is going to just take a bit of a this has run out of steam now. But then it did we get back on track. Was that when Elaine? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think I convinced myself that it was something good was going to happen again because everything had been like falling forward, and uh, I thought, yeah, there, there's, it's just going to be part of it. Yeah, I stuck with it. I know what you mean. At, at first, I was a bit like, who is this woman? Like, because yeah, she just seems to appear f with very little introduction, but then things do work out and uh, yeah there's a definite reason for what's going on in it and you know finally does the whole film tie up satisfactorily yeah I'd say it's a little bit of a letdown for me um, as in like well, just before the credits scene yeah there's the resolution of the entire plot and then there's That's, the very last it seemed yeah. like a bit of a Hollywood add-on in some yeah, ways I mean it wasn't terrible the last scene but it I, mm, I think the thing I liked about the last scene was that it wasn't something else I thought it was going to be which, you know, I'll, I'll describe that now but I'm sure you probably I thought it was going to have an ending which I've seen done a lot of other times Right. Okay. but yeah, and, and a, just a brilliant film and, and sadly not one that you're going to be seeing, it's not the sort of thing that's going to be on Daniel Local Multiplex anymore no. No, just, just more X-Men more X-Men, yeah, but possibly with uh, Christopher Plummer taking over from Finney Jones as the Juggernaut yes <laughs> and I want you to know one thing. If I ever see you again, I'll kill you. Oh, hey, pal, that's, that's no way to talk. You know that. We're partners. You know that. First the robbery, now the murder. We're partners. We always have been. So that's everything for uh, show 10. Yes. You never have to do it ever again. Yes. <laughs> But to celebrate the fact we've reached double figures, uh, what we've got now is the first of uh, many competitions yet Ooh. to come. Uh, we've got some uh, wonderful DVDs here, which we'd like to give away to a lucky listener. We've got uh, David Carradine. Two lucky listeners. Two lucky listeners. Oh, it's not going to be a double double package. Oh, okay. I think it'd be nice to Their share out the cup, gifts. Their <laughs> cups runneth over. Um, yeah, we've got David Carradine in. A, would you describe this as a martial arts film? Looking at the cover, kind of. It meets, looks special. Meets um, Conan almost. Yeah, there's, it's definitely set in some kind of other realm. And any film which has Eli Wallach and his cast as a character called the Man in Oil, <laughs> and he's he's looking out at me from the back of the uh, DVD case in a cauldron. But yeah, this is uh, David Carradine in The Silent Flute, which is based on a story by Bruce Lee. And also uh, a movie, A Woman Called Abisada, which is uh, what did, well, I think I thought was we've covered a Japanese movie and we we're going to sort of go in a vaguely eastern direction <laughs> with these. Kind of, yeah. 
It's but, by um, Noboru Tanaka, and it's on HD Films, who release a lot of unusual 60s uh, Japanese films, so like pinky films, basically. This is a pinky film. What's a pinky film? A sex film, Oof. to some degree. <laughs> right, I plead innocence. But yeah, the question that we're going to ask, if you'd like to win these, is The Silent Flute stars David Carradine another member of the Caradine clan featured in a film that we've covered uh, in one of our previous shows if you can tell us the name of that film email us and uh, you could be uh, oh, what do they usually say these discs could be winging their way to you but uh, yeah send your answers to us um, at midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk yeah and then we'll um, we'll pick one out pick of, one we'll buy a hat on show 12 uh, yes but if you want to get in touch with us for any other business, uh, yeah, other than the Hotmail address, we're also uh, on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Zuckerberg um, owns their souls. <laughs> yeah, he does. For what they're worth. But also we've got our website, uh, midnight-video.com. Com. Uh, which is always updated, yeah. It's not just the podcast. Uh, Phil's working overtime putting up all sorts of supplemental material, yeah. which is well worth having a look at. Definitely. And also um, we're on Twitter. Uh, at Midnight Video come and say hello to us on there or Ooh. leave any remarks, questions or we'll just join up and hear what we've uh, what we've got to say yeah and of course subscribe to us through iTunes and you can always leave little comments and star ratings there I'd just like to say thanks to Travis83 who did leave a comment uh, very favourably uh, comparing us to Mondo Movie yes, as did Richard Sampson on Facebook um, massive boots to uh, to follow. Yeah, a couple of guys we should have mentioned a few shows back, but their comments vanished from iTunes briefly before we had time to uh, note them down. Corin Ennis and Tid71. <laughs> yeah, thanks guys. Yeah, really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, it's good to have it, you know, because I think it might entice other people to listen to us. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah, obviously it's enjoyable to do this, but uh, always nice if there's other people listening yeah. in. Just a quick heads up to uh, our friend Ali Cattrall. I mentioned a few shows back. He lent me the disc of Haxon for our review uh, back on show seven, I think. Uh, but he's just posted up something fun on YouTube. Uh, I can't believe, actually, yeah, show ten, and we've not mentioned the Wicker Man, I don't think. But here's our chance, because Ali has sort of uh, synced together the uh, soundtrack of a few scenes from the Wicker Man with Dougal and the Blue Cat uh, to astonishing effect. I mean, if you, I think everyone knows the scene with... Uh, I've got to call her Brett Easton <laughs> <laughs> with Britt Eklund taunting Edward Woodward through folk and nakedness uh, but yeah spectacular stuff go and check that out if you just put Dougal and the Wicker Man into uh, YouTube loads of stuff will come up all sorts of strange <laughs> things will uh, greet you yeah so there the end of show 10 and we're off to celebrate by eating 1000 cakes sayonara take it away Baron Von Trapp laughed a lot running around among bits of falling poly polystyrene.